from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, it's a British invasion. Highlights from my week in London, including conversations with Ellen MacArthur, Jeff Seabright of Unilever, Mike Berry of Marks and & Spencer, and more. It's a royal flush this week on 350. It's June 29th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. After a couple weeks of travel, we're back where we started. That means Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy is home in New Jersey. Hello, Heather. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to be back in the foggy summer of the Bay Area after um, being in the all-too-glorious weather in London last week and Hawaii the week before. It's actually nice to be home. Awesome. Are you jet lagged? Nah, I don't believe in jet lag. I, <laughs> I, I really don't. I really, I just, uh, I mean, I, you know, you get a good night's sleep and or two and, and uh, it's, it's good. I, I, my whole strategy with jet lag, particularly when I'm going somewhere before I get home, in other words, on the way out, is just to ignore it and to just push through. And yeah, I get a little bit tired and, you know, but I can have a crummy night's sleep here at home, so it, it, I'm used to powering through anyway. So no, no jet lag really. I'm a very photosensitive sleeper, so that that I guess that's helpful actually. I kind of do get back on the the new time zone very quickly, but uh, the old time zone doesn't quite leave my body for a few days. Okay. So. Photosensitive <laughs> sleeper. Yeah. Well, speaking of changing the clocks, uh, we changed things up this week with our newsletter lineup. Uh, I hope that. All of you out there have noticed that uh, we've launched three new newsletters, uh, changed uh, one up, and uh, kept one exactly as it as it is. So um, we now have uh, our green buzz, as it's always been, on Monday mornings uh, that um, I edit. On Tuesday, we have the new Transport Weekly, edited by senior writer Katie Fehrenbacher. Um, Heather, uh, on Wednesday, it's uh, Verge Weekly, as it's been, that's Oh, edited by Elaine Shea and Shauna Rappaport. On Thursday, Heather, you have Energy Weekly, the a new energy-focused newsletter. And then on Friday, Lauren Phipps has the Circular Weekly, looking at circular economy issues. It's kind of cool. And um, you have to sign up for each of them. They were not going to automatically uh, port you over to those. The, uh, the world doesn't work like that anymore. Uh, but um, they're all good, and we hope you tune into those. Yeah, I love the thematic approach. It's It allows me to be more thoughtful about my coverage in general. Um, plus, there's so many things I would love to write about that I can't write about. You know me, Joel. I, already, I always have way more story ideas than I can actually pursue, and this will allow me to um, point to some of the trends that, um, that we see out there that have a lot of uh, application for the corporate sector, but that we haven't quite managed to figure out how to cover yet. So I'm excited about this. I think it's going to help me become more disciplined about my own coverage. And yes, please opt in for me and for Lauren and for Katie, um, Joel and, and, and Elaine and Sean. I got it easy. They're already opted in. But uh, the three, the rest of us, these thematic ones, um, you do need to choose and we want you to read us. So get on it. 
Well, speaking of get on it, let's get on it and get to the weekend review. So this is the first of some of the sights and sounds, well, sounds, I guess, uh, that I encountered last week in England. Um, what you just heard are the church bells from St. Clemens Danes, an Anglican church in the city of Westminster, London, situated just uh, on the Strand. For those of you who know, I happened to be walking by and heard the bells appealing and whipped out the old iPhone and just wanted to capture that. And we've got a couple more sounds like that coming up uh, later on in this week's podcast. But Heather, uh, what, what's on tap for this week's Week in Review? So we'll start off by one of the stories that I uh, that I wrote this week. Um, it's focused on Cox Enterprises, so the the automotive communications and media company, big uh, privately based company based in Georgia. You've been there. I've never actually had the honor of being to their location. But um, what I what I've been doing a lot lately is looking at the different sorts of ways that big companies are investing in renewable energy. And Cox has taken a bit of a different approach than others. It doesn't sign power purchase agreements. What it's been doing is actually investing on, on site. So um, working with developers to put together uh, on site solar installations and actually owning and operating many of these themselves. So they look at it as a short term financial investment as well as a long term hedge on energy costs. So they've been. Um, They've been doing this for a while, and what they're doing a little bit differently now is they've actually formed a joint venture with some some of the companies they've worked with in the past, and they're getting bigger. So this is a much bigger deal um, than in the past. They're able to to offset a lot more um, with this projects that they've just uh, set up in. There's four solar farms in Florida and in Georgia. So that's that's what one of the things I wrote about this week. So talk to to their um, strategists about why um, why they're doing it this way, how how they they got the funding and and the money to do this and and so forth. So I I feel like it's just a good alternative um, view on on investments. Yeah, it's interesting too that as you said they uh, didn't want to sign a power purchase agreement, which means that just buying power from someone else's uh, solar or wind facility, they wanted to build their own, but they also uh, aren't operating it, so they didn't want to uh, have to be responsible for maintaining the 42,000 solar panels that make up these farms. So they've, they've, uh, they have a contracting and development company that they've partnered with. Um, so they're, so, and then there's a, they have a tax equity arrangement. So they're sort of getting the best of both worlds, which is the direct control without actually having to do a lot of the work. Yeah. It, it, it was interesting because actually when I did ask them about the tax equity investment, it took them a long time to um, actually get that to happen because of tax laws. Um, I think they've been thinking about this for like eight years and this is finally they've been able to pull this off. And the other thing that was interesting, um, I asked them about the tariffs, right? Um, because the solar tariffs came into play earlier this year. They actually had the panels for this these particular projects bought before then. So it didn't factor in, but they. But um, Steve Bradley, who's the the fellow that I interviewed about this, um, he's a, an assistant vice president with the with the Cox Conserves uh, program. There, he said that the uh, there definitely was a, a spike in panel prices when when the tariff got announced, but it's sort of stabilizing a little bit now. He says he thinks that some of the some of that has worked its way through the system, and um, 
there's a little, you know, he thought, thinks people were being a little bit opportunistic and that the prices have come back. So definitely something to think about, especially if you have a facility where you want to make uh, an investment. It's just, a, like I said, a different, different approach than some of the, the massive power purchase agreements we've been, we've been writing and reading about. Well, let's move over to a very different topic, the idea that corporate social responsibility is not really a thing anymore, which is to say that it is a provocation here, this piece by uh, Hugh Welsh, who's president of Royal DSM. Um, CSR is dead. Uh, Long live sustainability as corporate strategy. Uh, You know, I've been hearing this for a while, and it's, it's sort of... Uh, interesting, maybe paradoxical, which is that uh, sustainability has supplanted corporate social responsibility, even organizations like BSR, which used to be called Business for Social Responsibility, doesn't talk about social responsibility much these days. They talk about sustainability. And yet, uh, the definition of sustainability, uh, at least the way it's practiced, not the definition, is has always been what it is, but the, the implementation inside companies for a long time, it was just about environmental uh, issues, and now it's including many more social issues. So even as uh, CSR, as a term, goes away, sustainability is broadening to to uh, incorporate a lot of what CSR has traditionally referenced. So I'm not sure what this means, but it's definitely uh, an interesting and, as, as I said, provocative piece. I think part of this as well is the, um, it points to the movement of integrated reporting, right? So I've been writing about this a lot, and I know you're thinking a lot about the, the sort of ESG factors, right, that get, that get considered as risk, the environmental, social, and governance factors um, that are now being considered risk for a company. So it, the, the word we're hearing a lot more is that word, and part and part, parcel of being a fi- fiscally responsible uh, board is trying to look at these risks. And so you know, it's not that it's dead, it's been <laughs> subsumed, I don't know, it's, it's sort of part and parcel of, of the mindset now for the really um, forward-thinking companies. Uh, and so for me, it's kind of linked to that movement um, of integrated financial and sustainability reporting. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and you know, the CSR meme was really, you know, tied to this, you know, doing well by doing good. What's a company's social responsibility? What is their responsibility to be a force for good in the world. And you know, that hasn't gone away, and companies still talk about that all the time, even if they don't use the CSR meme. But, but, but the risking is really interesting. And uh, you know, we've, we've moved to an era, and it hasn't been widely acknowledged, but I've been talking about this increasingly, where we, we've shifted from uh, what is business doing to the environment? What's the impact of business on the environment? To what's the impact of the environment on business? Uh, you know, in a world of resource constraints, of climate change, and, and everything else, what, how is this affecting business? And this is where risk becomes a factor, and opportunity, by the way, which is, of course, uh, part and parcel of, of, of risk. Uh, you know, what are the opportunities for companies here? And, and yeah, there's some organizations. I had lunch uh, this week with, with somebody who uh, sort of a big deal in in uh, you know the circular economy world, and and he said, you know, we don't talk about risk. This is entirely about opportunity. Nobody wants to talk about what's bad, and yet investors very much want to talk about the challenges uh, and and the risk 
of investing over the long term um, in some in companies that may not be prepared for uh, all that's to come in the climate and resources and everything else. So yeah, CSR is, is sort of slipping between the cracks here as a meme, and I, it's probably a good thing. Yep. And so that points to a need for new leadership, which gets us to our last story of this week. It's by um, a longtime friend of ours, uh, Shannon Hode. She's got a, a column called Purpose and People. Um, and in this first installment, she's interviewing uh, Stephen Howard. He's the chairman of Power to Change, um, also the exec, uh, the former chief executive for um, some, some companies. And this is just one of these wonderful Q&As, uh, uh, interviews about leadership and how, how we look at leadership versus being a manager, right? What, what's a leader? What's a boss? And there is just a great... It's a, a great dialogue. I, frankly, I read it and I thought, wow, I got to think about how I, I view things and how I talk about things. Um, but Stephen really talks about the two styles, as I mentioned before, the boss versus the leader, the boss focusing on I, the leader focusing on we. That's, that's kind of you know, well known. But I didn't think about what both of them focus on, which is giving permission, right? Giving people permission. How do you give permission? How do you protect your your team, your staff um, um, from you know when they make a mistake? You know, let how do you let them lose? How do you how do you teach them um, how to be better thinkers? And then just process, right? Everyone, as much as I hate process, it it is what people need to <laughs> do their job. They need to understand where the boundaries are. They need to understand um, how to get from point A to P or or actually, if you're thinking less linear, how to get from A to Z in, in a circle. So it's a great, anyone at any stage of their um, development, I think, will, will definitely come up with, with at least one or two things in this particular interview. It was just really thoughtful and um, uh, easy to read, too. Yeah, I'm with you on the, on the lack of taste for process, but I've also come to respect it more um, as I've watched it unfold at our little company, about not quite 30 people in green biz. And, you know, we've, um, as we've grown, we've had to put in place a lot of process. And uh, again, it's not my thing or yours, apparently, but uh, people appreciate it. And, and a lot of the, the, the younger employees and millennials uh, are the ones who are initiating it, saying, you know, we need to you know, know how to do things. We need to standardize how we do things. It'll make us much more efficient uh, and effective. Um, and, and uh, you know, and one of the things we have, I think, is a lot of, is a very flat structure where people uh, easily take on leadership roles, even if they've just been there for a few months or a year. Uh, and, and, and that's really a fun thing to watch. Um, and it really does, um, you know, put the uh, emphasis on the we part. And, and, and I'm very proud of, of my uh, two partners, Pete May and Eric Farrow, and and, and the rest of the team, including you, Heather, in terms of how we've empowered people uh, to, to take things on. And, and, and a lot of what um, uh, Mr. Howard is t saying here is, is really rings true for me, even though uh, you know, I'm not big on, on management. So uh, I, I really encourage this. And, and by the way, Shannon, is, uh, this is, she, she'd been walked, uh, writing a piece about careers in the past um, for us. And this is her new take, P Purpose and People, a regular column she's going to be contributing. And um, I'm really excited uh, about this first one and looking forward to seeing many more. 
I just have to say one other thing about this because I love this one piece of advice, especially um, be aware of your shadow. Love that. I mean, you just have to be so aware of how, what your actions um, are showing other people and, and, and how people are going to act in that shadow. And that little melody came from a random bagpipe player that I found uh, serenading passersby on the Westminster Bridge that crosses the the Thames, uh, just a stone's throw from Big Ben during my trip to London last week. And we're going to spend the next while uh, hearing some of the conversations that I had uh, and uh, and talk a little bit about um, what I saw in London. Why were you there in the first place, Joel? I'm jealous. You've got to send me next year. (laughs) Well, maybe. Um, well, the, the the event that brought me over there is the annual um, summit, the sixth annual summit that the Ellen MacArthur Foundation holds for uh, members of the Circular Economy 100, the group of uh, companies and cities and other organizations that they uh, put together that, you know, all seeking new opportunities to accelerate their circular economy visions and ambitions. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Dame Ellen MacArthur, she uh, retired from competitive sailboat racing in 2010. Among her feats was that in 2005, she broke the world record for the fastest solo circumnavigation of the globe. Uh, when she retired, she started the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. It's, it's a nonprofit that works with business and education to accelerate the transition to a circular economy. Um, the circular economy is something that we've been uh, uh, Increasingly uh, uh, covering and and including into in our in our events, hence uh, the uh, creation this week of uh, our circular weekly, uh, edited by Lauren Phipps. Um, Ellen MacArthur Foundation has been a big partner of ours, and we've had Ellen on stage as well as other members of her team participating in both our Green Biz and Verge events. So. Um, I attended this event and uh, you know wanted to see what the conversation was about circular um, and in Europe in particular because most of the participants there were from Europe. And um, along the way, I was able to to get Ellen to step out of the conference for a few minutes to have a quick conversation to get her perspective on the state of play of the circular economy. And here's that conversation. So, Ellen, how is the conversation about the circular economy different this year than it was, say, a year or two ago? I feel the momentum is really building. I mean, the, the topic of the circular economy is becoming further and further forward in people's minds, I would say generally across education, across universities, across businesses. We, we, we feel that as an organization, though that's hard to present specifically. It's, it's conversational and, um, and accumulative. But I think what's been different here versus a year ago is where some of the businesses are on the systemic initiatives around plastics, for example, where we had a business a year ago saying, you know, the first business saying we're going to make our, all our plastic packaging out of compostable, reusable or recyclable plastics. We now have many businesses by 2025. And I think that that part of the momentum is real. I mean, we're not there yet. That plastic doesn't exist in that form yet. But those commitments are real and they're moving very, very quickly. One of the things I noticed uh, notable to me here is that 
we didn't start off with saying, well, what is the circular economy and how is it different from recycling and all these other things we've been doing? That must feel like progress, even though you may not always see that, that you know, recognize how much that's changed. But that feels like a big step. I feel that the energy in the room is, is elevating every year. I mean, every year we say that and you think, you know, can there be more energy the following year? But I really do feel that there is. I think the level of conversation is changing as well. We have you know, higher levels of government, we have very high levels of business you know, presenting, they're talking about strategy, and it's quite open this year. I don't know if you felt that as well in the presentations. People are really talking about what they're doing, the businesses as well, you know, the business panel talking about circularity was really saying, this is what we're doing, this is what our barriers are, you know, this is what we're you know, moving towards, and I think that, that level of open discussion in this format really works. Well, every year, every year there's more and more proof points. One of the ones that areas that just you seem to have be, be the right organization at the right time is around plastics. Now that plastics, this uproar about plastic waste is finally, even though it's been around for a long time, it, 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 it's finally catching global attention. Uh, do you see, there must be a big opportunity here for, for you and all these companies to step in. I think three and a half years ago when we began our own plastics journey, we looked at many global material flows and we chose plastic as being very high volume, very low value and a really hard nut to crack. And when you look at trying to fix the global plastic packaging problem, which is completely international and huge, even the biggest organisation, the biggest brand, the biggest manufacturer of plastic packaging, they can't fix it on their own. And for us, there was that realisation that actually we need systemic change, we need to get everyone around the table, we need to get the biggest brands, the biggest plastic manufacturers, the waste reprocessors, uh, the countries, the governments, we need to get everyone around the table and agree what success looks like for this industry, which was no mean feat. We need to paint the economic picture of what's lost, where the material flows go, you know, what leaks out of the environment, what gets recycled, the figures were really quite astounding when we first found those out, and then following that, with everybody around the table, to say, right, how are we going to do this? Yeah. We're going to... Yeah, that, for us, was key. We're going to make 50% of plastic packaging designed to be recycled, 20% needs to be reusable, and 30% needs to be completely redesigned because the small format you know, sachets are just not the future. Yeah. And collaboration seems to be one of the big themes here, and so on. I'm sure that's going to keep being a theme. You know, you have to go on stage in about 30 seconds, but what are you hoping the conversation will be like? How will it be different next year? I would hope next year that there's an ever elevating technology element from when I say technology I mean you know science innovation material science uh, tech I think that conversation is building and we've seen some phenomenal presentations today around different thinking or different different ways to har harvest protein using you know uh, replicable units to um, to take food waste in and protein out. I mean, we've seen some some. I mean, that's technology, really, isn't it? It's technology creating new forms of farming. Um, so I think that conversation will continue to elevate. But I think what would be wonderful to see as well is companies saying, "This is what we've done." Yeah. Well, congratulations on a great event, and thanks for continuing to elevate the field, Ellen. Thank you, Joel. Cheers. So while I was at the summit, another person I spoke with was Ashma Sukhdev, the government and cities lead at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. So they support government officials at the national, regional, and municipal levels to create the, I guess, the enabling conditions to transition to a circular economy. Uh, there's a circular cities movement taking place. Uh, Google uh, here in the U.S. is is very engaged in that, and we're going to be talking about a bunch of that at our Verge 18 conference. Um, and I wanted to really hear, you know, what that, where the state of play was on circular cities. So I, I got a few minutes with Ashma, and here's that conversation. 
Ashma, there's been a lot of talk about circular cities, and there's a lot of circular cities initiatives. We heard from Paris and Barcelona, and of course there's uh, cities around the world that are starting to think about this. Talk a little bit about the evolution of the idea of circular cities in terms of, is there a definition? Uh, how evolved is that conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So when you're talking about circular cities, it's essentially applying the circular economy principles to urban systems. So um, how can we design out waste from our cities? How can we um, sort of keep products moving through our cities and things like that? Um, I wouldn't, I'd say we're still evolving the definition, still finding out more about what happens when you apply them to different, this, these concepts to different cities. Um, what happens when you apply them to different systems? How do those systems interact? Um, so there's definitely more, more to be done in that space, and that's something the foundation's working on right now. Um, but it's also something we're kind of co-creating with cities as we go along. How is the conversation different in Europe than, say, the U.S.? Um, I'd say in Europe, it's certainly, people are more familiar with the principles of a sector economy. They, they hear it coming from the European Commission. It's trickled down to, to national governments. Um, lots of cities are developing circular economy strategies and roadmaps and things like you heard from Paris today. Um, the, the conversation in the U.S. is still, is still coming up. Um, there's definitely a lot of awareness and understanding of uh, zero waste principles and um, lots of cities that are starting to lead on that. We work with Phoenix, Charlotte in the U.S. We know San Francisco is doing a lot. Um, so it's, it's definitely just emerging in the U.S. I think the other thing that comes up a lot when we're working in, in the U.S. is the, this idea of equity and how circular economy could play a role in that. How can it unlock economic opportunities? How can it unlock economic development? So that's definitely a, a, a difference in the focus. You hear some companies talking about circular cities. Google for, is one that comes to mind. Uh, what is the role and, and the opportunity for companies to play in this new concept of circular cities? Huge. Um, I don't think that cities can necessarily achieve a circular economy without companies playing a role in it. Um, a lot of the, the cities that we work with are kind of, they understand when they're starting on this journey that they need to they may lay out a strategy, but at the end of the, at the, end of the day, it's going to be the businesses that are delivering on this. Um, they can procure circular products, they can build their city halls and all sorts in a circular manner. But again, they need businesses that understand what that means. They need businesses to be able to deliver on it. So are you seeing uh, companies that, that are surprising you in sort of some of the innovative ways that they're stepping into the conversation? Yeah, definitely. I think companies are being quite um, collaborative and innovative about how they're approaching cities on this as well. Um, I think they're, they're looking to co-create those solutions. So um, an example is Venlo is a small city in the Netherlands. They decided that we'd like to create um, a circular city hall. Uh, and they really co-created that with the, the construction companies. They, they built it on cradle-to-cradle -cradle principles, and it was a much more collaborative approach than we've seen before. So definitely very exciting to see. So people must ask you all the time, what's the poster child city for circularity? Is there one city that you point to that's kind of doing it right? That's a tough question, and I'll get in trouble, I'm sure. <laughs> but no, I think um, we've been working with the City of London um, for a long time now. We definitely see them as a poster child, not just for their ambitions, but also 
for the way that they've approached developing their circular economy strategy. So they um, developed this roadmap a few years ago, um, which actually they sort of talked to a number of businesses while they were doing it. They got them on board to say, will you work with, this, with us on this? They talked to universities. Um, so they've taken a very collaborative approach. They've focused on a few different sectors. Um, they have a pretty large team that's working on circular economy right now within the city. So it's, it's, great. it's been great to see that progress over the last few years. Great. Ashma Sukhdev is a governments and cities lead for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Thanks so much, Ashma. Thank you. So that crowd sound was the uh, sound I have in a local pub on the actually the evening I arrived Monday June 18th during the World Cup and England was playing Tunisia and you can hear by the sound of the crowd that England won that match two to one. It's kind of fun being in in London during the World Cup, uh, not just because of England's participation, but because uh, you know football, as, as as soccer is known in in Europe, uh, is such a big sport and everyone stops during the games and there are TVs on everywhere. So that was a little feel for what it was like to be in and around a pub during the World Cup. So while in London, I had the chance to meet with a number of other professionals. Uh, last week's podcast, we shared the conversation that I had with Karen James, the CEO of the Global Sustainability Consultancy, ERM. And another conversation I had with uh, Richard Madison, the CEO of TrueCost, which is part of S&P Global. And TrueCost, of course, is our partner in our annual State of Green Business report. And there's a couple more I wanted to share this week. So on my last day, I hit kind of a trifecta. I have to say it was pretty fun. I had breakfast with Mike Berry from Marks & Spencer. He's the CSO there lunch with Jeff Seabright, the CSO at Unilever, and dinner with my friend and mentor, John Elkington. So that was a big day. And uh, I was able, while there, to uh, interview a couple of them. So first up is Mike Berry, whose uh, title is Director of Plan A and Sustainable Business at Marks & Spencer, the big British retail giant. Um, uh, Mike is one of the veterans of corporate sustainability in the UK and and leads Marks & Spencer's Plan A, which is a really ambitious plan they put together a number of years ago, which focuses on sustainable, profitable growth for the company while taking on a broad set of ambitious social and environmental goals. So uh, while after breakfast, we... So after breakfast, we moved aside and had a brief conversation on tape, and here it is. First of all, Mike, it's great to be here. Joel, great to see you too. So you are sort of, if not the dean, probably one of the provosts of sustainable business in, in, in the UK and one of the veterans around the world. And uh, one of the things that MS is known for is Plan A, which you just updated. So first of all, could, could you give the elevator pitch of what Plan A is? Sure. Plan A is Marks & Spencer's comprehensive plan to tackle every social and environmental issue that faces. 100 commitments, we launched back in 2007. I think the thing that makes Plan A different is longevity. For 11 years, we've remorselessly tackled every product, every farm, every factory, every shop, every consumer interaction we deal with, progressively making all of that more sustainable. Today, 83% of the products we sell, the 2.7 billion individual items we put on the marketplace, have got plan A story to tell. Target for 100% by 2020, by 2025, 
every product will have multiple plan A stories to tell. That started to become sustainable. What we want to make sure, though, is that the new plan that we've launched, the update in 2017, three big goals in it, to help 10 million people live happier, healthier lives. Secondly, to become a zero-waste business. That's the whole issue to do with plastics and food waste as well. And thirdly, to help a 1,000 communities prosper, to be a real positive voice in there. And they're the three things we're driving at the moment. Very clear business benefits for us. Delight customers, engage our uh, employees in terms of purpose. Thirdly, drive down our cost base to make us leaner. Fourthly, drive resilience in our supply chain. And fifth, and most important of all, prepare for a new radical marketplace in the, new tw- in the early 2020s that is truly sustainable. Wow, that's, uh, that's impressive. So what did you learn over the first 10 years of Plan A that that's, uh, you'll be able to apply to this next uh, eight or 10 years up to the 2025 goals that you've just set? So two, three key pieces of learning, Joel. One is just longevity. You can't crack this in a year or two of a nice blazing award-winning plan and then you walk away from it. This is year after year after year. My success is success is success. It will probably make MS truly sustainable. This is a long-term journey. Secondly is integration to the business. I've got a small team of 10 in the middle of Marks & Spencer. I've got 81,000 colleagues who run the business. They work in shops, they work with lorries, they work with supply chains, they buy apples, they buy oranges, they buy dresses. The job is to make sure that they do sustainability as part of their day job. And partly that's a call to arms because it's the right thing to do, but a lot of it's about the business case, showing them why it really matters. The third big and final piece of, of learning is about partnership. Marks & Spencer can't possibly change the world on its own. It's about working with organisations like the Consumer Goods Forum, where it brings together Nestle, Unilever, Coke, Pepsi, Walmart, Tesco, huge competitors, but who are willing to work pre-competitively on issues like palm oil and deforestation, food waste and on plastics that none of us can solve on our, on our own. So that to me is the, the, the key way forward, longevity, integration and making sure you've got the platforms to scale it together. I mean, in some ways, it sounds not just like a recipe for sustainable business, but just good business practices. I mean, at some point, wouldn't some people say, well, that's just the way business should be? These should be collaborating, should be innovating, should be looking deep into what customers want. How does how sustainability make this different? So two, two quick thoughts on that. One is that the whole point about collaboration and competition, businesses very, very rarely collaborate. They're always trying to knock six bells out of each other in the marketplace. The concept of coming together and saying, put all that to one side from the chief executive down, which is what happens at the Consumer Goods Forum, and we're going to tackle deforestation together, is new, and we need more of it. The second thing that I think makes sustainability a bit different is, is mindset. It's the recognition that even if you succeed on your own, you fail together. There's no point creating a green oasis of a Marks and Spencer prospering in a desert. If society, communities, and the planet fails around us, we fail with it, however economically successful we are. So we have to build these interactions together. And a final thought is just about the role of technology in the future. I think we're all beginning to understand for the first time that we're shifting now from a trajectory of becoming less bad, just taking off the rough edges of our existing business model and really striking out into these radical new approaches to selling food, to selling clothing, mobility, energy, everything, it will be radically different in five years' time. And this is about setting Mark and Spencer up to succeed in those new marketplaces. You've been around this field for a long time, and, and yet you sound really excited and optimistic. Is this uh, plan A sort of energizing for you? Well, to quote a little bit of Dickens, we live in the best of times and the worst of times. I mean, if you look around us, there's lots of reasons to be concerned. The political system around us, the environmental science that we see, the social um, numbers we see about the impact of poverty and, and exclusion and migration around, around the world. Lots of reasons to feel down in, down in the d- dumps. But for me, the great possibility now, for the first time I can see, is being able to build and scale truly sustainable business models. 
cars, uh, sorry, mobility that people want, food that people want, fashion that people want, which has got a fundamentally not just lower impact on the planet, but a positive impact as well. And we've not had that in the past. I love the vision. Thanks so much, Mike Berry, Director of Sustainability at Marks & Spencer. Great to see you. Thanks. Great to see you too, Joel. I'm just curious, Joel, uh, like what's the one thing you feel like a, a U.S. retailers could really learn from, from what Marks & Spencer is doing? Well, I think they're, they're very broad and, and, and fairly deep in their approach. I'm certainly looking at a lot of social equity issues and, and engaging communities where they do business, which is everywhere in the U.K., um, and, and really working on, on a lot of issues there that have to do with lifting people's lives. And at the same time, taking on the environmental uh, circular economy is, is, is big for them and, and a lot of other issues that you'd expect. I mean, so I'm not sure that if you compare them to, uh, say, Walmart or, or Target, that they're quantitatively different or qualitatively different. They all have ambitious programs taking place, I think. Marks and Spencer, like Unilever, who we'll hear from in a second, uh, have been at this a little bit longer and um, probably a little bit more collaboratively with uh, local and national governments than we see here in the States. Interesting. Thanks. Just, I just had to ask. Yeah. So, and then there's Jeff Seabright. Jeff is the chief sustainability officer at Unilever which is, of course, uh, headed by Paul Pullman, at least uh, for another year or so till Paul uh, steps away once they find a replacement. And Jeff, uh, who formerly was the CSO at Coca-Cola, leads the company's uh, Unilever's ambitious sustainability program, which is called the Sustainable Living Plan, which we've written and talked about extensively over the years. I just wanted to catch up with Jeff and, and hear how things were going and where that plan was headed and, and just sort of his perspective on sustainability across the pond. Here's my conversation with Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Great to see you. Great to be here. Um, well, I'm the one that's here, so you're always here. <laughs> but um, one of the things that I've been hearing this week as I've talked with uh, companies, number of leaders like yourself, is that there's a sense that the pace of change uh, in sustainability is there's some, some impatience, I guess, and maybe some frustration that things aren't moving as fast. And I don't hear that as much from U.S. companies. I, mean, I was wondering, is that something that you get a sense of, too? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as we look at some of the, the big macro challenges that, that, that we face as a business and that impact our, our business and our consumers, whether it's sort of sustainable agricultural systems and the, the broken food system in the, in the, in the world today, uh, or the circular economy and the kind of the, the, the crisis around pl plastic pollution, uh, to climate change and biodiversity, inclusive growth and, and, and uh, uh, inequality. Those are, you know, those are huge systems challenges, and and I think you know we're we're making some progress. Uh, we have been making some progress, but it's been it's been piecemeal, uh, and I think it's been um, kind of uh, not as transformational as the situation requires. I'm wondering if if that's in part because we're thinking much bigger than we had thinking about. Uh, the, you know, at the grand scale, at the, at the planetary scale, at the uh, sustainable development goals scale. And so that <clears throat> makes it you know, harder to achieve the kinds of goals when they're as audacious as some of those are. Well, yeah, and, and I think you know we uh, we're a big business, right? So we uh, operate in 190 countries. We have 400 brands, and and two and a half billion people use one of our products 
uh, every day. So really taking a look at the, at the, at the, the bigger picture is, is critically important for us. And our, our CEO, Paul Pullman, was on the SDG high-level panel. Uh, and we've really done our, uh, uh, our homework to, to really understand how the SDGs represent a, the, the world's business plan uh, for improving sort of the human condition in pl within planetary boundaries and how we can support that and in the process of supporting that, uh, grow our business because we think that's smart business. So that's been part of the, of, of the sustainable living plan. How do we, how do we grow the business while uh, reducing the footprint? Give us a top level of how that's going. Yeah, so uh, we're about eight years into it. We announced it in 2010, and the whole idea was to uh, continue to grow our business, but to decouple um, the growth from environmental impact, and in a sense, recouple our growth to social impact, positive social impact. And I think you know, we've made uh, reasonably good progress on the environmental side. Um, we've um, you know, cut in absolute terms the emissions associated with our operations, what we've found on the environmental side in both water and, and greenhouse gases, uh, because we take accountability for sort of the entire value chain emissions, including consumer use, uh, is that consumer behavior change is really hard. Uh, and so that's, that's been a, a, a learning and a challenge going forward in terms of how we can help um, further reduce and decouple environmental impact. Uh, we're working very hard on um, uh, recoupling social impact in terms of uh, people's health and well-being. We met, met a, uh, had a goal of, of reaching a billion people with improved health and well-being, and we've reached about 600 million so to, to date uh, with programs like uh, hand-washing behavior change programs. You know, we're one of the world's largest soap companies, and so sanitation and hygiene is a very important part of what we bring to the, to the, to the agenda. Um, and you know we're working hard in our value chain to improve uh, livelihoods with smallholder farmers, uh, more inclusive um, opportunities and skills and access to finance for women in our value chain. So some very exciting work. I think you're ahead of a lot of companies in a lot of ways, but particularly in as more and more companies are starting to move beyond the environmental uh, goals to the social ones. What have you learned in terms of thinking about and tackling social issues that um, you probably didn't ap appreciate before you really launched into this? Well, I mean, I think the, um, we, we, we were, the, I think, the first company to issue a human rights report in, in, um, and sort of in, uh, aligned with the, the Ruggie framework uh, three years or so ago. And, you know, th these issues are, are, are really challenging. The environmental issues are in some ways simple. They're, they're, they're molecules and electrons. Uh, when you're dealing with people, you know, the, the, the hard stuff is the soft stuff. And, and uh, it's, it's really, um, in, in many ways, much more challenging, uh, but also much more rewarding. I mean, I think our, 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 our brands and our employees um, expect environmental stewardship from, from the company, but they get excited about helping people and, and the social side. So back to my initial question, it sounds actually like you're still pretty optimistic. Uh, it's too late to be a pessimist, I think. Um, so yeah, I am optimistic, um, but um, I'm also realistic in the sense that um, as we started off the conversation, you know, we have these huge, huge uh, challenges that are sort of uh, crowding in on us now, and we need systemic responses to these systemic challenges, and that's going to require businesses not just doing CSR-type things and sort of nice partnerships that are uh, doing good work, but, but at, at a very small scale. We need to work together across sectors, across business, with governments and civil society to really drive transformational fundamental change to, to change the, the arc of business as usual because um, we, we need to, that, those answers. We do, and thanks to you and your CEO, Paul Pullman, for helping show the way. Jeff Seabright is the Chief Sustainability Officer of Unilever. Great to see you, Jeff. Thanks so much, Joel. 
So you're back, Joel. Are you are you uh, are you staying put for a while? What's what's next on your travel agenda? Well, I actually am. I'm I'm not planning any any significant trips during July and August, um, uh, except for maybe you know family car trip or something. But no nothing, no big deal. Uh, September things pick up again. Uh, the next international trip is probably going to be to to COP twenty four in Poland in December. Um, so I'm excited to uh, do that. But in the meantime, there'll be a lot of domestic stuff in the fall. So I am happy to be home for the summer. And uh, as great a trip as that was, it's uh, it's just good to be around and dig into our all the upcoming conferences and things that we're planning at GreenBiz. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, as always, to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, make sure to look for a link to our other podcast called Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email at 350greenbiz.com. We love to hear from you. GreenBiz350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. We'll be back uh, in two weeks. We're going to take next week off to celebrate our independence with the rest of the USA and uh, come back on no, Friday the 13th for the next edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>